Hello and welcome to the Free Gift Podcast, originating from the Free Gift Gospel Mission. The Free Gift Gospel Mission is an independent Bible-believing church preaching Jesus Christ as man's only provision for redemption and salvation. We are located at 1025 Maple Street in Kingsport, Tennessee, on the corner of Maple and Brook. This podcast is a Christ-centered ministry reaching out to souls with the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us. started yesterday wondering, well, what am I going to teach for Sunday school? And Adonis suggested, well, this is our last Sunday before Christmas. How about a Christmas lesson? Yeah. <clears throat> I knew I married well. <laughs> so I began to study, and then I texted uh, the pastor about 10 o'clock last night and asked him if he had anything planned for this Wednesday, and he said, he'd, he'd said he was going to do a Christmas story. I said, well, that's what I'm doing, but I caught blooming. This story bloomed. And there's no way I can do it in one lesson, so we're going to continue this Wednesday night. But today, let's go ahead and get started. If you have your Bible, let's turn into the book of Luke, chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 26 through 36. 26 through 36, this is the announcement of the angel uh, to Mary that she's about to uh, be with child. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 36. And when you find your place, let's reverence God's word. Stand for the reading if we're able. The Bible has this to say, and it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Gabriel is always announcing a deliverance of some sort. Every time you find him in the scriptures, he's speaking of a coming deliverance. Verse 27, to a virgin, a spouse to a man, man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. That's important. We're going to see this over and over. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou, art, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, we'll go ahead and read the rest of it to, to verse 38. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. 
For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Well, Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the reading of this blessed word. We thank you for the story of the birth of our Savior. And I'm thankful for this body of believers that are here and those that may be watching online, God. I pray you would bless and move. Father, forgive me where I fall so short and use me today for your glory. For I am thine, Lord. Just do with me as thou wilt. We love you and thank you and praise you in the high and holy name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen amen. Now, this is probably going to be a little bit different lesson than what you may expect. We're not going to do the magical, feel-good fuzziness of a lot of Christmas lessons. We're going to look at this a little bit more of a, from a pragmatic standpoint. We're going to look at, uh, but we're going to look at things factually based. We're going to look at things and back them up. I, I love the Christmas stories that leaves you feeling warm and fuzzy, but. I want you to get this because this is going to make you more sound in your doctrine. So, the first Christmas. Now, the secular world today will go to great lengths to dismiss the narrative of the birth of Christ. They dismiss the star which guided the Magi as being a comet or a shooting star. Even professed Christians will try to do this. They'll try to concoct some sort of, you know, well, we rolled back the, the Stellarium map to that time and these stars lined up and those stars lined up. Instead of just saying it was a miraculous guiding of God. Right? That's what the word says. It was just a, it was a star that God placed there to guide them to Christ. They dismiss all of the angelic interactions. They dismiss the virgin birth. They dismiss every point that they can possibly muster an alternative answer for. Even when that alternative is so crazy that it'd be easier just to believe what the Word of God says. So we're going to look at the story according to the scriptures and the prophecies, as well as covering some points you may not be aware of that lend even more credence to the story as told in the Gospels as being 100% accurate as written. Now, some of the most familiar prophecies are from the most well-known Old Testament prophet, and that's Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, and you may at first not think that this is a prophecy concerning Christ, but it is. It says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. This is speaking of Christ being born in Galilee. Now Galilee, you have to understand, and, and I want you to, you see what it says here, they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death. I want you to reconsider Psalm 23 just a little bit instead of it being peace for us. Think about Christ walking the streets of Galilee. He's living in the land of the shadow of death. Now the reason it was called that is because this is the northernmost part of Israel and it was the first place that northern armies, aggressive armies, would come and attack. This was the first place that fell when the northern kingdom of Israel was carried away. It was completely, it was, 
It was not a, a nice place to be. Uh, there were pagan rituals. There were all sorts of, of mixed people in this. It's why it's called Galilee of the Nations. It's actually the word here means Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles, because there were so many Gentiles in Galilee. This was not a nice place to be. But it says here in this place, the light has shined. It goes on in chapter 9, verse 6, where unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Now Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this prophecy especially gives us the starting point of our narrative. But also it is a point of contention for those who deny the virgin birth. Now their reasoning often concerns the word that Isaiah uses in his text for virgin. Isaiah uses the Hebrew word Alma, which means the damsel, which can mean a maid or a young woman of marriageable age. And they argue that if Isaiah meant a virgin, then the Hebrew word Bethula would have been used since it specifically means a virgin. So let's dig a little and see if their claim can stand up. Well, what were the words of the prophecy? It says, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. So this conception and birth will be a sign from God himself. Now, having a marriage-aged young woman conceived would stand out symbolically about as much as a traffic light would on Stone Drive. This is a common, everyday occurrence for a woman of marriageable age to conceive. So this is, doesn't sound very much like it's a sign from God himself. But, for a virgin to conceive, that's a once-in-all-time event. It had never happened before, and it will never happen again. That sounds a lot more like something from God. Secondly, if we jump forward in time about 600 years, well after Isaiah's long gone, 70 Hebrew scholars translated the Old Testament into Greek, which was the common language of the day. That's the Septuagint translation, and that was the translation that was being used at the time of Christ. So in this very important translation, the scholars translated the word Alma in Isaiah 7:14 to the Greek word Parthenos. This is the same word that's used by Paul in his second letter to Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 11:2, Paul says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Guess which word is Parthenos in the Greek? Virgin. And here it's tied even closer to the word chaste, which I believe was hagnos, which meant pure or innocent. So, parthenos only, only means a maiden who has never had relations, a virgin. So the scholars of the day that did this translation, they expected a virgin birth when they translated Isaiah into Greek. So the argument that Isaiah didn't necessarily mean a virgin is wrong. These scholars who translated the Hebrew would have been men who had spent their entire lives studying the scriptures. They wouldn't have made a mistake like that. 
And it's also important, and I should say of paramount importance, that Jesus had to be descended from David according to the prophecies. We see this mentioned twice right here in this narrative between the angel and Mary. In other words, the only way that Jesus could legally be the recognized king of Israel was to be descended from David. But there's a big problem. Jeremiah 22, verses 29 through 30. It says, O earth, earth, earth. Three times, very important. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. This was a bloodline curse on Jeconiah, who was also known as Jehoiakim. He was the last male heir of the Davidic line to sit on the throne of Judah. There is this bloodline curse. Now, while Joseph, the scriptures tell us, Joseph was a direct descendant of David, that's why he had to go to Bethlehem for the taxes, because that's the city of David, through the royal line of Solomon, but because of this blood curse, he could never be king. But the biological connection to David, however, is necessary for the legitimacy of the king according to 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 through 15. And what that tells us, that's God saying there will always be a seed of David upon the throne of Israel. That was a promise that God made to David. So, there has to be a biological connection but yet not through the royal line. Well, Mary was also descended from David through Solomon's brother Nathan, the prophet, whose line wasn't cursed. His, there was no blood curse upon that side of the line. But those descendants were not qualified to be king either because they were not of the royal line. So, born of Mary, Jesus was a biological descendant of David. Yet, as Joseph's adopted son, remember Christ was adopted, just like we are, he was in line to be Israel's king, but he did not carry the blood curse. So, in reality, Jesus is the only man born into this world since 600 B.C. who is legally qualified to serve as Israel's king, and only because he has no earthly father, but was born of a virgin descendant of David the king. That's a pretty big order to fill, right? It is. So God not only kept his word of the blood curse pronounced against the royal line of David, he also kept his promise to David that one from his blood would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Why? Because Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie neither the son of man, that he should repent. Hath he said, shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Jesus was God's answer all along. Even as Israel fell to Babylon, Ezekiel wrote of the removal of the crown from David's seed until a certain time. In Ezekiel 21 27, I will overturn, 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 three times. And it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. Jesus was the answer all along. 
So not only does God keep his word on the bloodline curse, but God keeps his promise to David at the same time. I'm sure the devil leapt for joy when the bloodline curse was pronounced. God had another plan. So this takes us full circle back to the angel's conversation with Mary and the conversation with Joseph and Micah's prophecy. Now Micah's prophecy is this, but thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, and that was put on there to differentiate this Bethlehem from another Bethlehem that's further north. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. That's the one he was talking about in Ezekiel. Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So now let's go to the angel's conversation with Joseph in Matthew 1, <coughs> verses 18 through 25. <coughs> it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So this is well after the angel had spoken to Mary. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. And while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David. There's the connection again. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy, Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, and here's Isaiah seven fourteen, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So, it says here that Joseph was a just man. And he was clearly troubled by the decision that he faced. And he didn't act out of anger or haste, but he was meditating on the issue before him. He did not want to bring shame on Mary. To do so would have cost her everything, literally. Because Mary had no brothers, so there was no male heir to inherit her family's lands or home. So it would have been forfeit to whomever she may marry in that tribe. Now, how do we know that Mary didn't have brothers? Well, because while Christ was hanging on the cross, he gave charge for her care, not to a brother, not to another family member, but to John. There was no one else to stand with Mary. There's other reasons as well having to do with inheritance laws and things like that, but that's, that's one of the main keys that we want to remember. Now, in Numbers 36... There was an allowance that was made for any daughter who inherited land to keep that land within the tribe, within her father's bloodline, as long as she married within the clan of her father. You remember the story of Manasseh and those who were on the other side of Jordan? Moses made an allowance for them so that their inheritance would never be lost from their family. Remember, those inheritances were given by God. 
Now, in this way, the inheritance was preserved to that family on Jubilee when the land would go to the rightful heir. Joseph understood this. It was no small matter for him. And so he surely cared deeply for Mary. This was not simply an arranged marriage. Luke 2, 1-5, one, one <clears throat> And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, when he says all the world, it literally means all the civilized world. They had just taken the last of Persia. So from Parthia in Persia to England was now under Roman control. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Now Jerusalem and Israel was under the care of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David. There's a connection again with David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. This keeps on hammering home the connection with David. Why? Because this is the Messiah. The promised one. Of the bloodline of the descendancy of David. Now by historical accounts we know that Cyrenius was governor over Syria twice. And both times he called a census and a taxing. Now the first time was in the, from the year 6 to 4 B.C which is the time we have here. So we know we can narrow down Christ's actual birth to sometime right in that time period. This, along with weather patterns of that part of the world and the birth of John the Baptist, can actually get us very close to the birth of Christ. And we're going to get into that later, like Wednesday. But we're going to continue on now with Luke here in verses 6 through 7 of chapter 2. And it says, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that sheep should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now when a Hebrew child was born, they would typically wash the child with clean water and rub them down with salt that took care of any bacteria or anything like that. Then they would tightly bind them in soft, clean linen. In Jerusalem and the surrounding area, that linen was often formerly the robes of the temple priests. There wasn't just a handful of priests, okay? By the time of Christ, there were by some estimates as many as 7,200 priests in rotating service in the temple. Now David, back in 1 Chronicles, had divided the services up, so everybody pulled a shift. The priests rotated in and out because they obviously couldn't have them all there, but there was three times a year that all the priests were on duty. Okay, that was the spring feast, Pentecost, and the fall feasts. But you can imagine the robes for 7,200 priests, any time a garment got soiled or torn, it could no longer be used in the service of the Lord, and since they were made from the finest of linen, they were often cut into strips and sold, especially for the use with infants. The cloth was also often twisted and braided for use in the menorah as wicks for the oil. So there was light that came from that. So our high priest, Christ Jesus, likely began his life in the remnants of a priestly robe. That's good stuff, there. 
It would have been white. Yes. Well, this wouldn't be. This is this is not his robe. This is what he was swaddled with as an infant. That was his garment of crucifixion. Yes. So let's answer now why they were in a stable. This irritates me. The health, wealth, and prosperity frauds have long tried to push the idea that Joseph was a son of David. He was wealthy, and the only reason they didn't stay in the inn wasn't because they were poor, but because there were no rooms available. I've heard that over and over from the likes of Copeland and all that bunch, because they think everybody should be rich. If you're a Christian, you should be rich, especially them, because if you send them your money, then God will send you money. It seems to me if they believe that, then God ought to send them money and leave our money alone, right? That's right. But the Bible actually refutes that. But first, I want to explain what an end was. Because our traditional view of what an end is wasn't even known at the time, okay? There was no uh, motel vav. You'll get that in a minute if you know of Hebrew alpha, uh, numbers, all right? That's vav is six. There was no hotel vav, okay? There was no end like that. What they're referring to here is a stopping off place. An inn was a caravansary or similar structure set up as a place of refuge. That is, it's a large building, it's built from bricks, and within this building, which is usually built around an open courtyard, <clears throat> there was a large common area with medium to large sized rooms where small groups could stay with their animals, and they had to provide their own food for the animals. And they did this, and they're, they're, these are still in use along some of the trade routes, the old trade routes and stuff. You would come in, you'd bring your animals with you. Why? Because practically everything you own was on the back of that animal. And you're in this room, and it's brick all the way around. It's got a hard roof over it. There's one small door, so you can easily defend from bandits and things like that. This is not a motel, okay? It was a central, there was a central watering pool, and there was no manager to check you in or out. These were public places, and they didn't cost anything to use. So it wasn't because Joseph and Mary had the money to buy a room and they couldn't get a room. That's hogwash. And we'll show you in scripture later on that they were in fact at least lower middle class. It goes on verses 8 through 12, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So now we move to this scene, which is interesting. First, and why is this included in the nativity? Of course, there's the obvious connection, the shepherd connection, because Christ is the good shepherd. But why these shepherds and not many others of uh, shepherds that were in the land? Well, a few things to note. First, this is Bethlehem, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And the angel specifically calls Bethlehem the city of David, but there are two cities that are called the city of David, and the other one is Zion. Now, in Zion, David was at the height of his power, sitting on the throne in all his glory. 
However, he was born here in Bethlehem in a modest village, destined, it seemed, to be a modest shepherd. So, Christ is born in the same type of environment, a very modest environment. But, when Christ sets his feet back to earth, where does the Bible say that he's going to land? Mount Zion. The Bible tells us Mount Zion is going to be split down the middle. So, David in his glory ruled from Zion, but in his birth was in a modest place to Bethlehem. Christ in his modest birth also in Bethlehem, but when he comes back in power and glory, it's going to be on Zion. That's a nice little parallel. <clears throat> so Christ was born here, a modest beginning, a simple shepherd of the lost sheep of Israel. That's by his own testimony. Now there is a place very near to Bethlehem, actually about a thousand steps away from the temple. A thousand steps is what? The Sabbath day journey. A tower once stood there called Eder, and it was a watchtower over the fields where the temple lambs were kept. These are the lambs that were without spot, who were born for one purpose and one purpose only, to die for the sins of Israel. Now we can't say definitively that these are the lambs and these are the shepherds. It would certainly answer, however, why only these shepherds received this glorious display of revelation from heaven it's one way to say there would no longer be need for these lambs because the one lamb had now been born. So wherever they were, these shepherds were close enough to walk to the stable to see Christ and return in the same night. It also says in this display in verses 13 and 14, and suddenly there was with, an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, just as those who could afford it would hire mourners, we've, said that, we've seen that in the scriptures and the gospels, to wail at the death of a loved one, they would also hire people to go out into the streets and to sing and proclaim a firstborn son. But no human singing would be sufficient for God's firstborn son. But the host of heaven would proclaim it. Verse 21, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now I wanted to include this here for the simple reason that once again, it proves that all of God's decrees are for a purpose. This is a very ancient decree, right? It was how God's people were identified. God does nothing by random chance. There is an enzyme called prothrombin, or PT. It's a protein that is present in blood plasma, which is converted into active thrombin during coagulation. In other words, it aids in clotting and preventing bleeding. It is on average higher on day eight for a child than it will be for most, if not all, of that child's life. On day eight, it has an average level of 130% of normal adult levels. So in other words, on day eight, the child's blood clotting ability is higher than it will ever be in its lifetime. Also on day eight, a child will have all-time high levels 
of natural pain-relieving analgesic enzymes present as well. Now, we only learned of these things through scientific discovery in the last century, but in those days, people just knew things went better for everyone if they just obeyed God. Numbers 24 and 17, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And Wednesday night, we're going to look at the visit from the Magi. We're going to look at their gifts, and maybe shed some light on when the Messiah was actually born. The reason I say that is because if we do a little bit of discovery, particularly to do with John the Baptist and his birth, we can get his birth very, very close, and we know that John was actually born six months prior to Christ. That's going to get us very close, and you may be surprised how tightly this is going to tie right back into the feasts, which we've already covered. I didn't even expect it until I was digging through and studying last night. What so, would have been the language of the Magi? Do you know? Safari? I've always no idea. been fascinated. If they could communicate with Herod and all, they surely had to speak Greek as well. So. They came out of Parthia, but their lineage had came out of Babylon. These were the priests that Daniel was in charge of. This is how they knew what the sign was for the Messiah. Parthia in Persia. It was the last major city of Persia to fall to the Romans. These men were king's makers. I know the old Christmas carol calls them the three kings, but they were not kings. They made kings. Nobody ascended to the throne of Persia without these men blessing that ascension. They had a lot of political clout. And there's also some other interesting things that I ran across I hadn't even considered before that we'll get into Wednesday night concerning the Magi. But until then, trust the scriptures. For these are they which testify of him. There's a lot of people trying to explain things away out there. But when you really dig and you dig into the history and you dig into the traditions, you can't explain away the word of God. So Wednesday night we're going to look at the Magi, we're going to look at their gifts, we're going to look at the the date, quite possibly, of his actual birth. We know it wasn't in December. It is highly unlikely it was in December because December in Israel is wintertime. The weather can get very rough. In fact, if you, if you remember when we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles, they'd pour out a drink offering as an offering trusting God that the rainy season would soon be coming. And you can go on right now in the news and see the floods and all this sort of stuff that happens in that part of the world this time of year. So we're going to look at that. It's a great blessing. It was to me. I love you and I appreciate you. I'm going to go ahead and ask the Lord to bless the lesson. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the, giving me the opportunity to come be here tonight, God. And I pray you'd forgive me where I've fallen short, Lord, that you might use me. Help me, Lord, to properly lay out the story of the birth of your darling son, Father, that we might have a better understanding, uh, not just of the, the wonder of it all, Lord, but the doctrine of it all, and know that we can defend that the word of God is true, and that just as it's described, it happened, 
We trust you, Lord, and we thank you for all you've done and all that we know you're going to do. In the beautiful name of Christ Jesus, we do pray. Amen and amen. All right, now Sunday, of course, like I said, this is one of those lessons that blooms. You start out thinking, oh, this will be a, a one lesson or a one-day kind of lesson, but then it just kind of keeps growing and growing. And, and in reality, as I was putting this together, I thought today, I thought, shoot, I could do four or five lessons on the birth of Christ. <clears throat> but since Christmas is going to happen before we get to be back next Sunday, then it kind of throws the timing off a little bit. But we'll go through this. I want us to understand that, that exactly as it's laid out in the Scripture is exactly how it happened. Okay, you can trust the Word of God is true. There's no metaphors in the birth of Christ in the Scriptures. Now, we find the birth of Christ only in Matthew and Luke. Now, why is that? Why don't we find the birth of Christ in Mark? Because in Mark, Christ is the suffering servant, and it don't make two wits how a servant's born. I mean, that's just the facts of, of biblical times. We don't find anything about the birth of Christ in John. Why? Because in John, Christ is God, and God has no birth. He's eternal. So we find him in Matthew, where he's king, and we find him in Luke, where he's the Son of Man. So, just for a little bit of a review, Sunday, like I said, we started looking at the Christmas story based upon Scripture and the support for the accuracy of the story as written. Now, the secular world has tried to dismiss and dilute the nativity for generations. We have shown by the scripture that the virgin birth of Christ is clearly written off. It's not just a young woman of marriageable age. We also showed how it was actually a necessity for Christ to be conceived and born in such a manner. Why? Because there was a blood curse on the royal line of David that none of his heirs would ever sit upon the throne of Israel again. But in order to be a king of Israel, the person had to be of descent of David. So he was. Christ was descended through the blood of David by Nathan, not by Solomon, come down through the line of Mary. So through Mary, through the mother, he was a biological descendant of David. But... Because he was adopted by Joseph, who was of the royal line down through Solomon, he became the rightful heir of the, of the throne of Israel. There's also the issue of the blood curse that's put upon Adam. So therefore, Christ could not be born of any man and be the Redeemer. And yet he had to be man in order to be a kinsman Redeemer. So there are so many things that had to happen just perfectly for Christ to be the Messiah. And it did on that night. Everything happened perfectly. So by this, God kept his word of the blood curse which was pronounced against the royal bloodline of David. And yet also he kept his promise to David that a man of his seed would sit on the throne forever. Jesus is the only man born into this world since 600 B.C., who is legally qualified. Remember, God is a stickler on the law, right? He has to be. Christ was legally qualified to serve as Israel's king, and only because he has no earthly father, but
but was born of a virgin descendant of David the king. And since Christ still lives, he is still king of Israel and will be eternally. He's still the king. Amen. Now we also address the false idea that Joseph was actually very wealthy and the only reason that they didn't stay at an inn was because all the rooms had been taken. Motel 6 was full. A lot of the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers try to push that, saying it's okay to, to roll around in $100 bills and all this because uh, Joseph was a descendant of David. Well, by Joseph's time, there were thousands and thousands of descendants of David. Now, the Western idea of what an inn is was a concept unknown at that time. What it was was a brick structure with large rooms. It was bricked on three sides with an opening that had a, a solid roof. It was a public house. It was a place to stay over, a place that was safe. You could bring your livestock in, bring your possessions in. They still have these on trade routes throughout the Middle East. It's a place to stay overnight for a couple of days or whatever. There's water there. But it didn't cost anything. This was a public house for anybody to use. So the idea that Joseph had the money to get a room, but there just weren't any rooms available, is just, it's a foreign concept to the time period. Now we also looked at the angelic appearances to Mary, then three months later to Joseph, and on the night of Christ's birth to the shepherds, which we feel were the shepherds over the sacrificial lambs of the temple. Why? Because they were close enough to walk down and see Christ. Why three months? Well, the Bible tells us it was three months. We know it was three months between the appearance of the angel to Mary and the appearance of the angel to Joseph. We know this because we know that Mary had went to visit Elizabeth, her sister, right? Remember about John the Baptist leaping in the womb? He's six months. Been, he, she had been pregnant for six months. But it goes on down in Luke chapter 1 and verse 56. It says, Mary abode with her about three months and then returned to her own house. This is how Joseph found that she was with child, right? But three months she was starting to show. Prior to that, he did not, he didn't know this. So there was three months between those angelic appearances. And then we have the shepherds. Like I said, we feel those were the shepherds over the sacrificial lambs of the temple. This also kind of gives us a little key to the actual birth month of Christ. We're going to get into that in a little bit. So, let's look now at the rest of the nativity story. From verses 22 through 24 in Luke chapter 2, and it says, When the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now this is from Leviticus 12, and this also backs up the idea that Joseph and Mary were not wealthy people. In Leviticus chapter 12, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days, according to the days of the separation for her infirmity, shall she be unclean. 
And in the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And we talked about the, the circumcision last week. And she shall then continue in, in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. So 33 days plus seven days means 40 days. So this is 40 days later when she's fulfilled this. But what I want to key on here is in verse 6 of Leviticus 12, it says, And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that hath born a male or a female. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, meaning she doesn't have the money or doesn't have the possession of a lamb, then she shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest, the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be clean. And Luke goes out of his way to note that two birds were offered rather than a lamb and a bird, which indicates the poverty of Joseph and Mary. Likewise, as Paul writes to Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, speaking of Christ, he says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Amen. Now, it's true that anything on this earth, in fact, everything on this earth will be counted poverty against the treasures of heaven. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about Christ came into a poor family. The son, the firstborn son of Mary, adopted son of Joseph, who's a poor carpenter, and he suffered poverty. Christ suffered all things. So this is what we're talking about here. Joseph and Mary were not wealthy people. So don't let any of that garbage that's going on out there even bend you in that direction. Now another noteworthy incident that took place after this, and this was at the dedication of Christ, Two came forward, both of which had been given direct revelation from God of the coming Messiah. In Luke 2, 25 through 38, we have two people, Simeon and Anna, both who come to adore him. Simeon even prophesies over him. They recognize him as Messiah, as the salvation of Israel, and they bless him. Why would this simple little thing, you know, everything is in the scripture for a reason. So why is this that? Well, this is also required in the story of Christ according to the scriptures and in, accord in accordance with Deuteronomy 19 and 15 where a matter is established by two or three witnesses. These are the two witnesses. That this is indeed Messiah. These had, these, both these people, Simeon and Anna, had revelations from God and that's the key. The only reason they knew that this was Messiah is because God told them. So, other than Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, Simeon and Anna, there was no further inquiry of the child Jesus that we see recorded until Matthew chapter 2. Christ, in other words, was of no reputation. His birth wasn't known or greatly celebrated. 
And again, this is according to the scriptures as was foretold by the prophets. That's what the prophets said of Christ. There's nothing about him that's going to draw us to him. There's nothing to see that he's beautiful or spectacular or anything. He's of no reputation. This is what Paul also said. So, the inquiry we find in Matthew 2 is related to the verse we read towards the end last week in Numbers. And that's Numbers 24 and 17. It says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This story actually begins just over 600 years earlier than the birth of Christ, during the life of Daniel the prophet. Let's go ahead and, I'm going to go ahead and read through this story. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now a lot of people will look at this and say there's a contradiction here because they come from the east and they see the star in the east. But no, that's not, it's not a contradiction at all. They are in the east, so where are they going to see the star? Where they're at? In the east. It doesn't mean that they're looking east. Okay, it means they're in the east and they see the star. So when Herod, is, Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, one of the reasons he was troubled is because he was an appointed king. He wasn't even a Jew. He was actually what we would, he was Idumean, which would today be a Jordanian. And Herod, you can tell, obviously, from the scriptures that he was pretty intent on hanging on to power. And it says, but all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why? Because this wasn't the three wise men we see in the nativities. This was a caravan of men who had serious political power, who were known to be king makers. No one ascended the throne in Persia without their blessing. They had serious power. And when they traveled, they traveled with an armed complement. Okay, they had armed guards about them. And they were in enemy territory because Rome had just attacked Parthia, which was the remnants of old Persia, Rome had tried to overtake Parthia and had failed. Parthia had pushed them back. And so here come these men who are known to be kingmakers from Parthia into Roman territory. So of course they're going to be troubled. And it says, When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. So Herod has, has got all of the high priests in to find out about this Christ, about this one who's born king. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet Daniel. It's speaking of Daniel here. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. That's out of Isaiah. His name shall be Comforter and Governor and all these names that Christ has given. So it's speaking of the prophets. Now what's interesting here says, Then Herod when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. In other words, how long have you been following the star? 
So apparently they told him, as we'll see a little bit later. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Of course, that wasn't Herod's intent. It says, And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So here they have come. We see now that Mary is with Christ in a house, right? They're not in the manger anymore, which is important. But this whole event, it's only shown in Matthew. Now, why is this only shown in Matthew? Because in Matthew, Christ is king, and this is a kingly issue. Who is this one who's born king of Israel? Now, back to Daniel. As a teenager, Daniel, who was a prince of Israel, meaning he was of the bloodline of David, was taken hostage by the king of Babylon to ensure that the provisions of a peace treaty between Israel and Babylon would be obeyed. Now this is at the time of Jeconiah, the one we talked about last uh, Sunday, who is the one who brought the blood curse down on the line of David. This is the same time period. Of course, the kings of Israel would not obey, and as a result, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed and burned both the temple and Jerusalem. And if we read Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 through 49... Daniel had correctly interpreted the king's dream and was given great riches and promoted over the same magicians and astrologers which could not interpret the dream. And it is of their descendants that we believe that arrive as magi in Matthew chapter 2. So these same priests that Nebuchadnezzar had put Daniel over, this was the same line of priests which came to see the Messiah. How, how did they know about the Messiah? Who's the chief governor over them? Daniel, who received a direct revelation from God about the coming Messiah via the same angel that came to Mary, Gabriel. So, they knew of the sign of the Messiah because of the revelation which Daniel had received from Gabriel. Now something we may also consider here is the source of these gifts which they bring. In Daniel chapter 1, in verse 9, it says, Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Now it mentions this relationship several times. This is where uh, Daniel had asked that they not be fed from the king's table, but they be uh, receive a pulse, which is like a vegetable soup. So it is very likely, as was the custom for captured servants in many ancient kingdoms, that Daniel, along with the others, were made eunuchs. And we do know that Daniel never speaks of children, and he doesn't return to Israel, even after Israel is released to return after 70 years. We do read how Daniel had great wealth and influence in Babylon, and under Cyrus as well. Remember, he met Cyrus coming in and showed him a scroll that was 400 years older than Cyrus, that named him specifically as, his, as God's shepherd, as the one who would set Israel free to go back to the land. So Daniel had a lot of power, a lot of influence, and a lot of wealth. 
One author I read suggests that the gifts were most likely set aside or at least subscribed by Daniel to be given to the Messiah when he came. That these things may have actually been handed down for the Messiah and they had come from Daniel's own treasury. He bases this on the obvious prophetic means behind the gifts. I think I talked about this once before. These gifts that the Magi bring, though they were of great value to man, they actually revealed the only thing that this world had to give Christ. First was gold, which is notable to be given to a king, right? But the problem is the gold here is nowhere near the purity, right? Christ came from a place where he walked on gold. Then we have frankincense. Frankincense, which is harvested by uh, tapping trees. As the sap comes out, it hardens into tears. It's literally called tears. And they take the frankincense tears and they crush them and they beat them until they give forth a sweet smell, which they use for, the in, use for incense. In other words, a sweet-smelling savor. And then myrrh, myrrh which is used almost exclusively for the dead. It is an aromatic herb. Well, it's not a herb. It's actually also a sap, a sap that is derived by repeatedly wounding the tree deep to the wood. And as the sap comes out, that's what they're extracting is the myrrh. It's actually a thorn bush. It's quite likely that the crown of thorns was woven from a limb from a myrrh tree. So by repeated wounds, by the crushing, the beating, and just gold, which is the most valuable thing man has, but is worth nothing to the king of glory. So there's prophecy here concerning these gifts. All of these gifts also have a much deeper meaning, but we're going to note that in Isaiah 60, in a time that all kingdoms will be bringing gifts unto the Lord and Israel, during his millennial reign on earth, one of these three is missing from the list. Now Isaiah 60, verse 6, it says, The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and incense and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. What's missing? Myrrh. Myrrh was for the dead. He's only, he's only had to die once, right? He'll never die again. So that's missing. Now, as for when exactly the Magi appeared in Jerusalem, we can go by a few known bits from history and from the scriptures. The center of power for Parthia was still the Babylonian region. That placed it just over 800 miles away. A modest-sized camel caravan, and I believe this caravan was much larger than that, travels at a rate of 2 to 3 miles per hour uh, for 8 to 14 hours a day, and that's according to Britannica. I've never went out and actually timed a camel caravan, but according to Britannica, that's the average speed and distance. So if we take an average of 20 miles daily divided into 856, which is very close to the actual miles, that gets us to a minimum of 43 days if the star appeared when Jesus was born. 
Now, we don't know exactly where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were at this time, except that they were no longer in a manger. When the Magi arrived, they were not in the manger. They were in a home, in a house. Matthew 2 and 11 again, And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. We also do not know how long the Magi stayed. Scripture only says when they departed. Since when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Now, an interesting thing is that they would not have had enough money to travel all the way to Egypt, except the Magi brought them the gifts, which again lends credence to me to the idea that Daniel may have played a part in all of this, by the revelation which he had. Now, it says also that after this, Herod in his fury has all the boys of two years of age and under slain in an attempt to kill Jesus and secure his own kingship. So in Matthew chapter 2, in verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, and this is key, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Remember he diligently inquired, he, he brought them in privately and said, when did you see this, when did you see this star? And so they apparently told him. So this is why Herod killed all the children, all the male children from two years old and lower. So that tells us that very likely the scriptures seem to indicate that this was two years after the birth of Christ, when the Magi came. So, as we also mentioned last time, there is a significant historical fact to back up the nativity as it is written, without embellishing, and without trying to scientifically explain the events. I think sometimes as Christians, especially in the modern Western world, we tend to want to look for scientific reasons for things that happen. It's a miracle. This star, it wasn't a perfect alignment of planets. It wasn't a once-in-a-lifetime event. It wasn't this. It was, it was a star that God placed in the sky to lead these magi to Christ. Amen. And it was apparently there for two years. It's a miracle. So, another point that the secular world tries to dismiss the birth of the Christ is in the celebration in December. Hear a lot of this, a lot of this stuff. Uh, it's often been compared to Saturnalia, to the winter solstice, pagan rituals, and all manner of other things. And while all agree that the scripture is not directly specific about when Christ was born, but we know it was during the first taxation of Serenius, which places us in somewhere in between six and four BC timetable. Well, what else can we know? Well, just for practical historical knowledge, it is unlikely this taxation would have taken place in December. Why? Because in December, in that area, the weather's bad. You get a lot of floods, you get a lot of snows, you get blizzards, you get all manner of uh, bad weather. It's highly unlikely that Christ was born in December, and it is likely this date of December 25th 
was in fact the date integrated as Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire. To find out the month that it is most likely that Jesus was born, however, does require some detective work, but the information is there. This all actually depends on John the Baptist, what we can find out of his nativity from the scriptures. As we've already mentioned, John was six months old when Christ was born. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were John's parents, had been unable to have children until Zechariah received a visit from none other than an angel of the Lord. But what's important here in our detective work is to determine what he was doing at the time he received this visitation. We find this in Luke chapter 1. It says, there was, beginning at verse 5, there was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest, Zechariah is a priest, named Zechariah, of the course of Abihe. Now it's in the New Testament, it's, uh, it's just A-B-I-A, but in the Old Testament you'll find it's A-B-I-J-A-H. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless, and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. It doesn't seem to slow God down any. It says, And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, that's the key, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, fear fell upon him. And we know what the rest of the story is. The angel said, your wife is going to conceive and have a baby. You're going to name him John, which is completely out of the text of the name, how they would normally name uh, children of descendants of Aaron. So, Zechariah was a temple priest, and he happened to be on duty in his course when the angel came to visit. Like I said in verse 8, and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. Now, David had created divisions in the priestly order back in 1 Chronicles 24. He was dividing the descendants of Aaron into 24 family groups based on two sons, which would rotate the duties of the temple on a weekly basis. If you looked in Revelation chapter 4, and it speaks of in verse 4, and round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders, that comes from 1 Chronicles 24 where it is divided up into 24 groups. Now, <clears throat> of these groups, they were also, uh, during the feast times, we've talked about this, during the feast times, you had the three in the spring, you had Pentecost in the middle, and then you had the three in the fall. They were all required to be on duty during those feasts. But the rest of the time, they did their weekly rotation. Now, the religious year began about mid-March, on our calendar, and right away there were nearly three weeks of preparation and feast. Right, it's uh, unleavened bread, first fruits, 
these feasts that were in the spring, so that started off the year of the religious year, not the civil year. The civil year starts on Rosh Hashanah in the fall. And if we compare Luke 1 5 to 1 Chronicles 24 and 10, it shows that Zechariah was of the division of Abihe, number eight in the weekly rotation. So they had three months, and then they rotated in as the eighth one, and counting the time that all were on duty and the eight weeks in rotation, when Zechariah's turn came, puts the visit by the angel about three months into the religious year. A normal nine-month gestation period places the birth of John the Baptist at the beginning of the following religious year, not the civil year, the religious year, which places his birth about mid-March. There are some who would suggest it as highly likely that, in fact, John was born on Passover. So this opens us up a time window for the possibility of when Christ was actually born. So if we convert this to our calendar to avoid any confusion and discover a fascinating, I thought, possibility about December 25th, in all probability, John the Baptist was conceived in mid-June on or around Pentecost, and he was born the following March, as some say, on Passover. Now, according to Luke 1 and 36, Mary conceived in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that said in verse 36, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. That means that our Lord was likely conceived in late December, in the time of the latter rains. There's a prophecy about God bringing the latter rains. And then Christ would have been born the following September. Rosh Hashanah. The head of the year. So maybe we are unknowingly celebrating the beginning of his life here on earth as a man. Among Messianic Jews, there are two primary schools of thought concerning the September birth. Both have valid points and both are based on the notion that the Jewish feasts all have both historical and prophetic significance. One places the Lord's birth at the Feast of Tabernacles, since the feast commemorates the time of the Lord's dwelling with his people. The other places the Lord's birth at Rosh Hashanah because according to the Jewish tradition, both the earth and Adam were born on that day. And Christ is called the last Adam. So for this reason, as well as the prevalence of trumpets and its celebration, it's also called the Feast of Trumpets. Other factors, I personally prefer Rosh Hashanah, and I mainly point towards the angel showing up for the shepherds. The shepherds were over watching the sheep. Rosh Hashanah is before Yom Kippur, so the sheep hadn't been sacrificed yet. That's just my thoughts on that. And there is some speculation involved there. I realize that. But what especially made this interesting to me is that the reference source I used primarily for our study of the feast cycle and the prophetic possibilities of that cycle has absolutely no link or relation to the source material I used for this study. And yet they both come to the same conclusion. But the feasts have a lot to do with it. So, in a number of significant ways, by celebrating the origin of Christ's humanity, we are also signifying our belief that life begins at conception. Amen. 
But Christ was conceived in December, and it is the beginning of his life. So let them say what they want to. We're going to have Christmas on the 25th of December until the Lord says otherwise. So I hope this I hope this helps you doctrinally as well as giving you more security in the scriptures. This is not a metaphor of some mysterious messiah like a pagan messiah or something else like they try to put forth. They try to keep saying this stuff over and over and over. I hear it all the time. It just makes me sick to hear, oh, it's a dying and resurrecting God. There's hundreds of them in the pagan world. There's only one. There's only one that actually pulled it off, right? There's only one that brought about redemption and salvation. And that's Christ Jesus. Hands that hear nations stretched out on a tree and took the nest for me. Thank you for listening to the Free Gift Podcast. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at www.freegiftgospelmission.wordpress.com. Our service times are as follows. Sunday school for all ages at 10 a.m. Morning worship is at 11 a.m. Sunday evening at 6 p.m. And Wednesday night at 7 p.m. We are located at 1025 Maple Street in Kingsport, Tennessee. And we welcome all visitors. If you would like to correspond via email, you may email me, Pastor Vernhall, at freegiftgospelmission at yahoo.com. Or you may write to Pastor Vernhall, 3301 Martin Farm Road, Johnson City, Tennessee, 37601. We look forward to seeing you at the Free Gift Gospel Mission, where the gospel is preached and the Lord Jesus Christ is praised. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.